Hey folks, welcome to True Crime or Tall Tale. I'm Jacqueline. Each week, myself and my co-host, Kat, it's me, tell you two stories. One is a true case and the other is a work of fiction. And in the end, we will challenge you to guess which one was the true crime and which is just a tall tale. Wow, you have such a cool game show, guys. <laughs> so tell me, Kat, how are you? I'm, I'm pretty great. I had one heck of a day. <laughs> so I did the thing. I locked myself out of the apartment while everyone was at work. Oh, no. <laughs> I just was going down to check the mail. Today, it was a dreary March morning, wherein it rained all morning. So I was locked out of the apartment. It was raining. It was awful. But at least I got some D&D dice out of it. It just felt like I was rolling low. <laughs> That's the mail you were looking for? That was the mail I was looking for, and it betrayed me. I rolled a nat one, locked the freaking door behind me when I actively said, Okay, not gonna lock the door. I'm only checking the mailbox locks door instinctually oh that's a rough one yep yep but i found ten dollars so it worked out it worked out i just had to take a walk it was my day off take a walk in my pajamas and my sweatpants and my sweatshirt and my slippers that are now having to be retired to my roommate who works in town so just really Really walking around. Wow, our, our city really got quite the treat today. <laughs> they really did. No makeup or anything. Oh my god. If anyone from, like, Gotham Knights saw me, I would be mortified. They probably wouldn't recognize me. Recognize I, was in, I was in a green sweatshirt with my dad's company on it. Oh. <laughs> Crusty sweatpants that had coffee spilled on it multiple times today because I'm super clumsy. Um... Yeah, so <laughs> it was a day, but I found $10, and the dice were worth it. They're so cute. Oh, well, at least there's that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, how was your day? My day was pretty good. I have two stories to tell you. Oh, boy. One is a woman looked me straight in the eyes and said, you have a twin. Oh? <laughs> and I said, um, what? <laughs> and she's like, my cousin's daughter looks just like you. She's your twin. And I'm like, oh, okay. how funny. I'm not even from Massachusetts. <laughs> Weird. Thanks for telling me about my doppelganger right. random lady. Anyway, so if this reaches people, if you live in the North Shore and you think you might be my twin, DM us. I'd like to know. I'd like just photos. Normal photos to compare. Not for any shrine or anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, not at all. I must find my twin. No, it's not like I will meet my doppelganger and we have to fight to the death. I'm See, not trying to do that. Anytime I meet another person who goes by cat as a nickname, I have to ask if it's with a K or a C. If it's a C, we're going to have to fight to the death. If you're with a K, it's fine. We're cool. That's, that's... I'll, 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 I'll nod at you from across a crowded room and be like, what's up, little cat? That's chill. Oh, and I have one more story. It's from oh a few God. weeks ago okay. um, when I went home and I went back to Jersey. To Jersey? <laughs> Which jersey is that? The old jersey? Where it's not the Isle of Jersey. They don't want me there. <laughs> no, as I was coming back to Massachusetts, I was just entering the on-ramp for the turnpike. I'd just gotten through Easy Pass, and I saw a bald eagle soar ahead. Wow. And I was like, oh, life can still be beautiful even when you're entering the turnpike. <laughs> <laughs> and that is my motivational quote of the week. <laughs> Perfect. 
<laughs> Life can be beautiful, even while you're turning on to the turnpike. All right. Anyway, shall we get into it? I mean, yeah, we've um, we've got one more bit to do. If you want, um, you're the wine so, bit. You're so right. We have bits, guys. Because we're trying to be funny. <laughs> Is it working? We want to sort of like it's like I'm trying to be a fluffer for like the episode because we're gonna talk about murder in a hot second. So we're oh, trying yeah. to like deflect and be like, let's have a little bit of fun before we um. It's an ease in, ease out kind of podcast. Yeah. The middle is all just you know. Do you want to... What it is. you want a slapdash of um, comedy with your trauma? That's yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we do wine here. And yes. we have a Pinot Grigio <gasps> from the countdown thing. From the advent calendar I gave you on New Year's Day. Yes. Anyway, it's Pinot Grigio. Ooh, it's a white wine for oh, me. Wine. So you're white wine, I'm red wine. Yeah. Anyway, we can make that our aesthetic, though. It's like one of us is white, one of us is red. Yeah, no one has to know that, really. At the end of the day, I drink anything. You drink anything, both, but, like... Yeah, that's us. Oh, see, and it's, like, light and dark. It's, like, O positive and B. (laughs) Like, I'm talking about blood types. Oh! (laughs) I am... Are you B? Oh. Oh, I am O positive. Oh. Do you know your blood type? Nope. Because you don't donate. Yeah. Okay. Donate blood if you can. I get too many tattoos to donate blood. Fun fact, I didn't get tattoos and piercings for like, I don't know, going on three years now and um, four years. And I'm like, I did it so I could donate blood. And then I never did because I'm bad at schedules. I think I donated once. I mean, once is better than nuns. (laughs) Anyway, everyone hold me accountable for donating blood. Donate blood before I book you a tattoo appointment. Shorezies. Okay. This is good. It kind of tastes like honey mead. But yeah, like a little bit nice. sharper. It's smooth. It's light. A little bit zing. God, I can't wait for Ren Fair season. I can get mead again. I mean, we can get mead. I'd say but we like, can just buy mead. I know, but like getting it from a Ren Fair dressed up as a swarthy swashbuckler, something else. I want you to experience <sighs> yes. that. Anyway, thank you for um, indulging. As I say, it's time to get cozy. We are tucked into my bed, which I think will be our new recording location because I make a cozy space. It's so cozy. It feels like a sleepover with my bestie and we're just chatting. We're having girly talk. Even though we live together. We're having girly talk, talking about murder or crimes. That, you know, just girly things. Crimes that I've researched for a month. (laughs) Anyway, so I hope you are cozy and comfy wherever you may be doing whatever you may be doing, but we're about to get into it and get uncomfy. Today's theme is the death of a reporter. Oh, like dies on the job? Like actively trying to report something? Yeah, not necessarily like at the scene of a story. Or like they get got due to a case. Kinda, kinda the second part. Okay, alright. Yes, so to start us off, we're gonna talk about the First Amendment. (laughs) Okay, awesome. A little. The First Amendment includes the Freedom of Speech Clause and the Freedom of Press Clause. And to quote the Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black in 1971, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors. All right. And um, to kind of elaborate, you know, having a press that is free to report the truth as it be and as they see fit is necessary for a democracy because a democracy cannot stand in a society that allows the press to be threatened and intimidated by people in positions of power because that's how stuff gets swept under the rug and underreported on. Right. Whether that be leaders of large corporations, actual government officials, or dangerous names in organized crime. 
It is particularly tragic when reporters and journalists are threatened for reporting not falsehoods, but the truth. And the two reporters in these cases certainly weren't afraid of much, and doggedly pursued controversial stories, sometimes about dangerous and influential people. And unfortunately, that did catch up to them in the end. So, case one. Las Vegas, 2012. Okay. Here we meet George Ruman, 69-year-old investigative reporter for the Las Vegas Times. Okay, so he's older. He's been around. Oh, yeah. He's a senior reporter. He's been around the block. He knows what he's doing. He's been reporting in Las Vegas for nearly 40 years. Cool. He was most well-known for his coverage of organized crime and corruption in Las Vegas throughout the city's history. His colleagues spoke highly of his tenacity and integrity when it came to investigative work. George had reported on many hard-hitting cases in the past decade, such as bribes of local politicians by strip club owners to repeal a law that made all clubs in Las Vegas no touch. Okay. So basically, the law that says... Don't touch the girls. Yeah, you can't touch the girls, otherwise this turns into more of a brothel than a strip club. Right. Obviously, strip club owners thought, we'll make more money if the men are allowed to touch. Yeah. So they tried to bribe local politicians. When this was discovered and investigated, it ruined the careers of many up-and-coming political figures. Mmm, spicy. Yeah. The misuse of funds by the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, which is funded by state tax on hotel rooms. Financial records showed extravagant spending that had little to do with work and violated the board's own spending procedures. Ruman's investigative reporting directly led to a state audit and criminal charges being brought against the board members. So you could say they might have had beef with him. Okay. Another story was about city government failures that led to a deadly fire at Alpine Motel and Apartments. The building was built in 1972, was three stories high with 42 units. It had failed six fire safety inspections over the past 10 years, but yet was allowed to stay open. Interesting. On December 21st, 2009, a fire broke out in one of the units, and due to most emergency exits being bolted shut or obscured, six people died and 13 were injured. Oh, no. The building's fire alarm never went off. Are you kidding? Like, smoke detectors in individual units went off, but the but buildings, the buildings... Yeah, the thing that scares us to death in the middle of the night in our <laughs> building yeah. never went off. Love that. The fire commission had not been to the building in three years. Okay. And George reported on this one extensively. And most recently, in May of 2012, George published a series of articles accusing Tim Burtson, the Clark County Public Administrator and former probate lawyer, of administrative bullying, favoritism, and having an inappropriate relationship with a lower-level employee. Seemingly as a direct result of these articles, Burtson lost his re-election bid in June. County lawmakers also assigned a consultant to address the complaints against him by other employees. So, all cases very heavily embedded in Las Vegas and right. the directly There's surrounding like area. a lot of cases going on. Yeah, all in the That's past... a lot to keep track of. Yeah, all in the past 10 years, all big headliners, you could say. Okay. So, with George having ruffled many people's feathers over his career, some may say he had enemies, but still he relentlessly pursued the truth regardless of the risk. Unfortunately, someone with a score to settle caught up to George on September 2nd. George was exiting his garage around 11.20 a.m. when he was attacked by someone laying in for him. Video surveillance showed a struggle where one person fell to the ground and never got back up. I forgot that this is about a reporter and not like the lead investigator. Nope, this is a reporter. This is someone 
that I literally mean, like, just covered these cases. Yeah, covers these cases. And then, I mean, in some instances, covers these cases before they are even on police's radar. Like, right. He's bringing attention to things which then leads to heavier investigating and possible charges. So he's right. really, he's the first one to kind of get these scoops, you could say. Okay, so um, he goes down. So yes, from the surveillance, they can see that the assailant approached him dressed as a landscaper, wearing a wide-brimmed sun hat, orange long-sleeved shirt, work pants, and garden gloves. The assailant stabbed George in the neck in broad daylight outside his home. George had been stabbed seven times in total and fought for his life the entire time, according to a later autopsy. He had defensive wounds and his attacker's DNA under his fingernails. His body wouldn't be discovered until the next morning. The police had the difficult job of determining the motive for George's murder. Was it a robbery gone wrong? A random act of violence? Or was it someone upset by George's investigative reporting? And if so, of which case? George's phone and wallet were still in his pocket when the police arrived on the scene, making a robbery an unlikely motive. Mm. The assailant couldn't be ID'd from the surveillance video alone. They could be seen arriving in a maroon GMC SUV without a license plate. Police released stills of the surveillance footage, asking the public to help identify the perpetrator and vehicle. Police said the assailant was likely casing the neighborhood to commit other crimes before committing the murder. So it's they're saying that it's not targeted at this point? At this point, they released a statement saying based on the footage and how the assailant acts in the footage before and after, they think he was casing the neighborhood, possibly to commit other crimes. Interesting. Okay. Part of me believed that this was done in order to kind of engage the public being like, this person is most likely still a threat. You should really, really help us. Yeah. Okay. George's colleagues at the Las Vegas Times felt compelled to do all they could to find his killer and started investigating on their own. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is a... They rallying. They rallied. Yeah. I think this was a very... Personal case. Yeah. I mean, like, you're a publication that covers crime along with other things, and now a crime has been committed against one of your own. You're gonna want to be the first ones to get the information and you want to do him justice they started with george's current work and found he was working on a follow-up piece to his series on tim burtson in the clark county office in fact he had just submitted a request for information to the da's office for more of tim's files okay so yes seems very much like a lead yeah after losing the primary election in june and being publicly accused of infidelity perhaps the idea of another article was enough to send him over the edge oh so tim was being accused of infidelity when I mentioned that inappropriate relationship with a lower level employee, mm. it yeah, they're like, he's having an affair. Right. And he's a married man. Okay. So not only is this like morally bad, but the other employees in the office were like, the affair is affecting our work. Right. Like it's favorite, he's showing favoritism, he's bullying everyone else, and we are just not getting our jobs done. Right. Anyway, so the Times sent a photographer to Tim's home where the photographer snapped a photo of Tim washing a maroon GMC SUV in his driveway. Uh-oh. So. Looks like we got him. We definitely have reason to call on the police. So they turn this photo over to the police, giving the police the lead they need to narrow down the investigation. Tim Burton was now the prime suspect of a murder investigation. A search warrant was served on his home four days after the murder. Police discovered shoes and a straw hat matching the video that had been cut up in an attempt to destroy evidence. Uh-oh. The shoes also had apparent blood on them. Okay. Well... Both Tim's personal cars were towed by police, 
during the search warrant. After the lab results came back the same day as the search warrant, confirming that the DNA under George's nails matched Tim, the police moved in for an arrest. Police in tactical gear surrounded Tim's home, taped off the road for several blocks. Investigators found Tim inside his home with self-inflicted wounds to his arms and having ingested narcotics. Police believe this was in an attempt to die by suicide, knowing he was going to be arrested for murder. Tim was charged with the first-degree murder of George Ruman, a journalist who dared to report his wrongdoings as an elected official. Tim professed his innocence and claimed he was framed for the crime. Damn. Okay. So yeah, that felt speedy, but that is that is case one. Cool. Case two, Los Angeles, California, 1997. My birthday. I did just for you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Ray Smith, 37, was a prominent journalist for the Los Angeles Times, known for doggedly reporting on corruption and negligence in the city. He made a name for himself by reporting on what would be some of the biggest news events to come out of L.A. in the 90s. This included the 1992 riots incited by the public police beating of motorist Rodney King in 1991 and adding to the existing racial tension in L.A. at the time. These protests and riots reached a head after the four officers involved in the incident were acquitted of all but one charge. There was large-scale looting and arson along with drastic crowd control methods by authorities, resulting in 63 deaths, 2,383 injured, 9,500 arrested, and 1,100 buildings damaged. The total property damage cost more than $1 billion, making it the most devastating civil disruption in U.S. history, monetarily-wise. Okay. So, he was a big news source for these events, which lasted months. Then there was the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995, also known as the trial of the century. Right. The former NFL player was charged with the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Rodney Goldman. The pair were stabbed to death outside Goldman's condo in June of 1994. Simpson had the dream team for his defense, including Robert Kardashian. Simpson was acquitted of all charges in the end. Many have attributed the acquittal to the 1992 riots and the community's distrust of the LAPD, leading the jury to be unwilling to convict Simpson. Another big story for Ray was his reporting on the ongoing AIDS epidemic in LA during the 90s. The 90s, man. What a time to be alive and in LA. The CDC published an article in 1981 detailing the cases of five men in Los Angeles admitted to hospitals with a rare lung infection. In 1992, AIDS was the leading cause of death for men ages 25 to 44, nationally. There was little action from the local and federal government in the early years of the crisis, likely because the mysterious disease was largely affecting gay men, people with drug addiction, immigrants, and racial minorities. Yeah, the 90s, man! <laughs> right, so these are all, like, the hot, things. right, these are hot topic issues. In the Ray is reporting on these, people have lots of opinions about these, no matter what side you're on. Right. So, you could say he also ruffled some feathers. Mm-hmm. So as a man who covered controversial, hot topic stories, it wouldn't be a surprise to those around him that he would take on another dangerous story. Around 11.30 p.m. on March 31st, a woman flagged down a passing police car to report that two men had been gunned down. The victims would later be identified as Ray Smith and Howard Fitzpatrick. The woman, Sarah Harris, 39, was walking her dog when she witnessed the attack. She was across the street when a hooded man walked up behind the two men as they walked down the street and shot them both in the back. She screamed when she heard the gunshots and the assailant ran off. 
Afraid that the gunman saw her, she asked for police protection. So, who was Howard Fitzpatrick, and how did he end up murdered alongside Ray Smith? Howard Fitzpatrick, 42, was an analyst for a private data security company in Agua Verde, Arizona. According to Ray's notes revealed during the investigation, Howard had discovered a massive security risk within the company's satellite program, and his supervisors swept it under the rug. Howard had proof of it all and arranged to meet with Ray in downtown LA one late night in March, hoping to avoid being spotted by anyone who knew Howard. The investigation was chaotic in the beginning, with police trying to determine motive and follow up on multiple leads at once. If Ray was the sole target and Howard was just collateral, many people whom Ray had reported on in the past could have motive. Could it be mob-related considering Ray's previous reporting on mob corruption in City Hall? If the killer was truly after both men, it meant they likely had previous knowledge of the meeting and the fact that Harold was prepared to whistleblow on his employer. Mm. Slim chances, but it could also be a random act of violence and not a targeted attack. But considering it was a planned meeting yeah. and there was a lot at stake for some other people, I think it's unlikely. Right. Sarah was frantic after witnessing the attack and could only give a vague description of a hooded figure. As police worked with her and provided protection, they noticed some holes in her story. She had described the shooting as a close proximity, almost execution-style killing. Nearly a contact shot, which is when the barrel of the gun is almost touching the person it's shooting. Right. But ballistics would later reveal that the shooter was most likely more than 20 to 30 feet away. Ooh, if you're behind them walking a dog, Sarah. Ooh, someone's quick on the pickup. Sarah. She lived on the other side of the city, and this seemed to be a very out-of-the-way route for her to walk her dog. She also failed to mention that she knew Howard and was currently having an affair with his boss. Sarah! Sarah, oh no. <laughs> and most damning of all, Sarah had a handgun registered in her name, and that handgun would later be determined to be the murder weapon. Sarah! Yes. Oh, Sarah! It's not looking great for yeah, Sarah. It's Sarah. Come on. So. Apparently one job and you didn't do it. <laughs> what was her one job? To not get caught? Lying. Oh, I mean, she lied, just not very well. Yeah, not very good. Anyway, so let's talk about Howard's boss and Sarah's boyfriend. Ned Wilder, 45, was the director of the Agua Verde Network Security Agent Office. He began his relationship with Sarah two years earlier and would frequently meet with her in L.A. in Agua Verde. Howard had first discovered the security issue in January. During the months between Howard reporting his concerns about satellite security's Ned and his death, he had threatened to go public with the information, trying to get Ned to take him seriously. In response, Ned had Howard's cell phone tapped using the same technology they developed at the company and subsequently, sorry, and subsequently learned of his plans to meet with Jay. Ned felt cornered and desperate, knowing if the information went public, he would lose his job and possibly face criminal charges. Ned hired his girlfriend, Sarah, who was already based in Los Angeles, to silence the whistleblower. He told her where Howard and Ray were supposed to meet and promised her $30,000 for the death of both men. Damn. Which, in my opinion, I think is a little low it's for... A little low to kill two people. Yeah, but it's also like... 15000 It's also like, but darling, don't also, do it for me. Just don't kill people for I money. Mean, yeah, um, also, yeah, let's not put a price on human life. Say, I'll take the payment up front, get the money, and then call the police. 
be like, I just performed my own sting operation. Here you go. Here you go. Can I keep the money? (laughs) Most likely not. According to Sarah, Ned also manipulated her emotions as well, imploring her to help him. Otherwise, he would go to jail and she would never see him again. Oh, no. Don't do it for a man. Don't commit a crime for a man. Convincing her this would prove she really loved him. Don't do crimes for men. I I think we're getting a picture of Ned, which is that he's a gaslighter. (laughs) Don't do crimes for men. Just don't. Should we get that imploded? Yeah. Don't do crimes for men. Yeah, that's on the back. It's don't do crimes, dot, dot, dot. And on the back, it's for, for men. men. If you're doing crimes for women, hey, I mean, within reason. <laughs> for legal reasons, Just, that's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. So, now I think we're getting to the real truth. Sarah had walked her dog on the same block for 30 minutes, waiting for the two men to show up. Once they did, she crossed to their side of the street, quietly approached them, and shot them both in the back. She had been far enough away to avoid blood splatter on her clothes, but as she was walking away from the scene, a police car turned onto the block. She panicked at being caught at the scene of the crime, and instead opted to play as a witness to a grisly crime and flagged down the officer. Sarah! She she can act, just not for long. Yeah. Sarah soon flipped under police scrutiny, knowing they had a mountain of physical evidence against her, and agreed to testify against Ned in exchange for a reduced sentence. On June 3rd, 1997, Ned was arrested at his residence in Agua Verde and extradited to California. He cooperated with authorities, but professed his innocence. He tried saying Sarah was delusional and acted alone, even though the police had evidence of him wiring the money to her, and that he's the only reason she would have motive. Yeah. He was charged with two counts of murder for hire and conspiracy to commit murder, still professing his innocence. Sarah pled down to two counts of second-degree murder and murder for hire. Howard Fitzpatrick was murdered for questioning his superiors and daring to go public with a very real security risk. Ray Smith died trying to inform the everyday American of a corporate cover-up. So, Catherine, which one was the true crime and which was a tall tale? Pause and go to our Instagram at True Crime or Tall Tale Podcast and comment on this episode's post. Tell us which case you think is the true crime and which one is the tall tale. Then tune back in to see if you were right. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. I just gotta start off by saying I hate you. Why? <laughs> um, well, because you're so good at this. <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, I have honestly no fucking clue. Can I ask you? Is it because, like, they're both on the same level of believable? It's because in both of them you put an exorbitant amount of details that both sound like, oh, you would only have this detail if you, if it was, like, written for you. Right, if it was a crime show. If it was, like, a crime show. But then, like, no, like, not like if it was, like, a, like, like if it was, like, a document. Oh, oh, okay. I would only have this much detail if it really happened and someone was reporting facts to me. Or you're really good at freaking making them sound like each other. And, oh, God, I hate you. <laughs> I really do. Can I tell you something before you answer? Yeah. When I had Eris edit this, they had no comments. I hate you so much because you're so good at this. What I'm hearing is that you're going to do two for, like, one. Like, every one episode I do, you're going to be, like, doing, like, I'm doing, I'm hosting two. I'm hosting three. Because for me, I'm just, like, out here being like, ah, ah, 
I'm gonna lie. And it's like, it's very obvious and very clear which one is which. <laughs> I'm sorry. And you're out here being like, I'm the queen of vague. And also here, they're written the same. And I'm like, okay, that could be real. But also that could be very fake. And I'm like, Ugh. may I just remind you? The entire concept for this podcast, which you had as soon as we got into New Jersey, was your idea. I know. I know it was my idea. I am aware. I'm aware it's a very good idea. It is. It's excellent. I just don't want the audience to believe that I have tricked you into doing something I'm very good at. You brought this to the table yourself. Oh, yeah. No. I came... I'm good at the ideas. Am I good at the execution? Absolutely not. Listen, we have always said... You you have the steering wheel, and oh. you set the destination, and I am gassing the machine. Oh, yeah, in concept. I'm like, yeah, this is an amazing idea. I'm like, produce it. <laughs> executive producer, Here. Catherine Van Buren. Executive producer. This is why I anyway, sorry, I'm not trying to brag either. You just, you fluffed me up no, so much. No, I just, I feel, I feel honestly a little, a, a wee bit stumped. Can I, like, look at your notes? So I can... Yeah, there's no, okay. um, there's no spoilers okay. in the written, in the written word. Okay. Because I need to, like, do a little refresh and see the the things that I was kind of tripping off on. Because I think, okay, because you add the things that, you know, they were reporting on. Something about this one taking place in L.A., I'm, like, a little bit like, okay, L.A., Hollywood. Also, 1997 could hypothetically be 2007, the height of crime shows. (laughs) Could be changing it by a year. I don't know. You bring up, like, the the OJ trial. You bring up these riots that I have never heard of and AIDS. Those are all big things going on in the 90s. So that could be real. Or it could just be big things going on in the 90s. Meanwhile, in the other one, the thing that makes me feel like the first one might be be real is the, the fact that you mention a specific type of car. Now, unless you're really good at, you know, looking at a car and going, oh, that's the car in this TV show. Let me look up what kind of car it is. <laughs> a GMC SUV. I honestly, here's the thing. I'm so dumb that when someone says it's an SUV, I don't know what that means. <laughs> is that the big mom car? I don't really know what an SUV means. <laughs> okay, have you ever watched Criminal Minds? No. Fuck. No, I was going to say the big black Did cars. Did I trick you? <laughs> no. The big black cars that the Criminal Minds crew drive around in, they're black SUVs. No. Okay, but the, the SUV, SUV is the big mom car. And like Almost sed- more of like what sed- cops see drive. The, see, the word sedan also makes me think of big mom car, but I think a no. sedan is like I have a car. sedan. See, those are just words to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. So- but I will say, to be devil's advocate... Maybe we're just watching different crime shows. I've heard Criminal Minds say, we're looking for a color this car. Oh, yeah. I've heard that too. Pew! Just words. (laughs) That's... Oh, you fucker. (laughs) Oh, shit. I wasn't even using all of my brain cells and now one of them woke up and went, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) I hate you. You know what I think why I love Las this Vegas. So much? Oh my god. Okay, Las Vegas. Last time you did one of these episodes, Las Vegas was was the real one. No, wait. Las Vegas was the <laughs> fake one. Wait. Oh my god. You're floundering. I don't I don't know. Oh man. I'm also going, okay. Is Smith a fake name? <laughs> They're all fake things. <laughs> um oh damn. I can also see, like, the physical reenactment of someone flagging down the police. Being like, oh no, help. There's a lot of interview things in this one that make me go, hmm, maybe show, but also, 
Maybe not. I don't know. And in the first one, the first one, the whole, like, let's surround the house thing. I'm like, okay, that, that, that could be fake. That's pretty cinematic. But then I'm thinking about him being, like, overdosing on, like, narcotics and everything. And I'm like, have I seen anything in the show like that? Because usually it's a little bit like confession room, really, in a crime show. Or it's, like, a really weird grand scene. It's like, ah, yes, I care. Not not always to that extent, but you know what I mean. This one's tough. I just like you. <laughs> <laughs> this one's sticky because of the whole, like, hey, baby, kill him for me. Could be real, could be fake. Don't do things for men. There's also a love affair in the first one. Right, I forgot. <laughs> Remind me of that love affair? So, um, Tim. Right. He, part of the scandal in all the articles is that he's right. having an affair with one of his employees. Oh, shit. That's also very TV show-esque. Either way, I'm gonna be wrong, so <laughs> You have a 50-50 shot. I know, exactly. <laughs> but no matter what I say, I'm gonna choose the wrong answer. Okay. Ooh. Do it like a tarot card reading, but let me speak to you energy-wise. I'm gonna flip a coin. <laughs> you cannot. Ah! I need you to pick. Fuck. Give me a minute. Okay, I'm gonna go with case one real, and I'm gonna go case two tall tale. And I'm gonna be wrong. And it's gonna be the opposite. I have great news. You're <laughs> right! <laughs> oh my god! Oh thank god! <laughs> you did have great news! I would like to still count this as a tricky one. Oh, because it was so you tricky. literally just like pulled it out of the dark. Yeah, I was kind of sweating there. I was kind of sweating there for a minute. I was like, oh my god, I'm going to be so wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, damn. Okay, awesome. What was it? All right, let's 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 talk about the reveal. That still counts, because I was really sweating under the pressure there. Okay, why about the other document? All of the um, prior cases that these reporters covered are real. Yes. Regardless of if the case itself is real. Right. Those are all real things that happened in Los Angeles. They have been fact-checked by me and Eris. Yeah, no. All of those things I knew were real things that happened. Yeah. It just didn't seem like it would be all of the things that one person would break report about. The other ones fe- felt so sporadic. Like, it felt like less than, like, what were big things that happened in the 90s in Los Angeles? And <laughs> That's literally what like... I googled to find Matanza. <laughs> I know, but it still had me sweating. I was like, but it could be real. A, a somewhat up-and-comer trying to make a name for themselves, they would cover the biggest things happening in Los Angeles. Right, exactly. I'm not gonna blame them. Okay, so, let's go over our true crime and i have to say everything i'm about to speak about is alleged because this happened in 2022 oh my god wait this has not even gone to trial oh my god well you changed the year really i'd say see 2012 i was like that could be the tail end of a crime show that's why i did it oh my god and 1997 is the year that the tall tale came out so, I did not change that year. Oh, it really nice. was the 90s. Nice. Okay. Cool. So, in case one, George Ruman is Jeff German, the real man who lost his life in this case. He was an investigative reporter for the Las Vegas Review Journal, not the Las Vegas Times. I don't think that exists. He was with the Review Journal for 10 years and had worked for the Las Vegas Sun for another 30 years before that. Wow. Jeff German was an old school pound the pavement journalist who had trusted and embedded sources for most of his stories. Okay. He also authored a book called 
Murder in Sin City, The Death of a Las Vegas Casino Boss, about the death of Ted Binion, a Las Vegas casino crime boss. Hmm. And the Lifetime original movie, Sex and Lies in Sin City, was based on this book. Oh! Um, maybe we can review that sometime. I would love to. All right. Jeff was also the host for season two of Mobbed Up, the podcast, by the Las Vegas Review Journal and the Mob Museum, which was named Nevada's Podcast of the Year. Podcast! Yeah, he was also a podcaster. Oh my god, and, um, living it up. In the articles I read, it seemed like his co-workers in this could see that Jeff was a little nervous about tackling this new media when he had worked basically in print for so long. Right. But they said once he found his stride, he was great at it. And I just love the idea Aww. of this man who has 40 years of journalistic and investigative reporting experience tackling this new media to tell, you know, the stories that made the Las Vegas Strip. Right. And I was listening to it this past week in preparation for this episode. And in one of the first episodes of season two, because someone else hosted for season one, he talks about being sucker punched by a mob boss. Or by a mobster in his earlier years of reporting because the mobster didn't like how he was portrayed in one of Jeff's articles. And he's like, that's when I realized that, you know, reporting on the mob could get you roughed up. And I'm like, it's very chilling to think that then probably about 40 years later, reporting on an elected official got him killed. Right. Horrifying. Right. Like, in the end, it wasn't even organized crime that went after him. It was allegedly a... It was a crooked politician. There you go. I have to say it allegedly for legal reasons. But, you know, Jeff had humble beginnings. He was a Jewish man native of Milwaukee and a massive sports fan, especially loyal to the Bucks, Brewers, and Green Bay Packers. And known to host, <laughs> known to have the very exclusive sports packages before they were popular and to host Super Bowl parties for Aww, all of his friends. what a guy. Yes, I was very endeared with him throughout this research. So let's talk about the murderer. Tim Burtson in the story is really Robert Tellis. He is a 45-year-old elected official as the Clark County Public Administrator. He was a Democrat and he was a former probate lawyer. So what I understood about the position he held and the office he oversaw was that if someone died and had property or assets and they didn't have a will, it was up to this office to find like the next of kin or the closest family that would then where like the, these property, this property or these assets are now theirs. Oh. Okay. So it's a pretty niche office, because I've never heard of it before. But also, that doesn't actually mean anything, if I've never heard of it. Yeah. Because we're us. <laughs> Jeff was murdered on September 2nd. On September 1st, Robert received emails, basically from his boss, saying that there had been another like request for information from Jeff and the L Las Vegas Review Journal for emails and text messages communication between Robert and the employee he was supposedly having an affair with, which kind of tipped Robert off that Jeff was working on a follow-up piece. So he got that email September 1st. He killed Jeff September 2nd. Oh my god! That was... Overnight decision. Yes. He then sent two follow-up emails to this request hours after he murdered Jeff. Still kind of attacking Jeff's character and saying that, like, knowing he's already allegedly killed this man. Saying, like, oh, he finds a way to twist the truth and turn anything into attack against me. Please leave these files out of the request for files. Which is chilling that you can lay in wait to murder a 69-year-old man, stab him to death, drive out of his neighborhood, and then report to work hours later and 
and send emails as if Chilling. this is still an issue, even though you, in your mind... I've just solved it. Allegedly. Chilling. Absolutely chilling. So the employee he was allegedly having an affair with was estate coordinator Roberta Lee Kennett. Having an affair with a person that literally has like the same name. Oh yeah. I'm like, you should stop. <laughs> stop dating people with the sh- your same name. No one will pull it off like Taylor and Taylor. Yeah. Anyway, currently, as of January 26th, um, police are trying to get access to all of the text messages and social media contact between Robert and Roberta to determine if he was working alone or not, or if she knew about the murder and if she played any part in it. So one of Robert's former employees described him as quote, narcissistic and crazy, unquote. That was Janelle Lee. She also called TELUS sinister and calculating, according to Court TV article. Anyway, so so, um, an update on Robert. Currently, um, the latest I could find on the case is um, he had a public defender. He then hired private lawyers because the Las Vegas Review Journal said he has um, thousands, almost millions of dollars worth of real estate. Why Why are taxpayers paying for his public defender? Right. He then hired two different private lawyers, both of which fired or have requested to resign. And he now wants to represent himself. Pulling a whole Ted Bundy on this crap. Oh my god. He's qualified to be a probate lawyer, but he has never dealt with a criminal case. And I'm like, this is a recipe for disaster. Recipe for disaster. To such a point that the judge, when he requested this, said, you do realize that if you do a bad job, you can't appeal and say that you did a bad job of representing yourself. Right. But, yeah, I found this one, um, it's kind of sparking a conversation that I alluded to in the beginning of, like, what does society look like when journalists genuinely fear for their safety and are afraid to report on cases and are afraid to report on elected officials? Right, like, what does that do to the freedom of press? Yeah, and, like, what happens when you have young journalists looking at cases like this and saying, maybe it's not worth it, maybe I'll pick another career. Right, like, uh, reporting on news shouldn't be a line of fire for your job. Right. And like, once again, it's not, as far as I could tell, like Jeff ever reported falsehoods. He never made stuff up. He had sources and credible witnesses for his stories. He was telling the truth. He was reporting true facts. Those true and he f- got killed because yeah. he was just telling the ugly truth that people don't want on the surface. Yeah. Robert felt like his career and his marriage had been ruined and directly attacked by Jeff. And so, allegedly, he killed him for it. Love that. I wanted to end our notes on case one on our true crime with some quotes about Jeff. This first quote is from a representative of his family and was reported by the Las Vegas Review Journal saying, Jeff's life was taken prematurely by this violent, senseless act. Jeff was the patriarch of our family. He was loved and will be immensely missed by his siblings, his brothers-in-law, his nieces and nephew, and all of his friends. We will be dedicated to preserving his memory in our personal daily lives and in the community. And my next quote is by Jeff himself in his acknowledgments from the book he wrote, where he says, Finally, I wish to thank my mother, June German, who, like many Las Vegans, was enthralled with this story. Mom never missed reading one of my articles. She was my inspiration, always believing, even when I had my doubts, that I was capable of writing this book. She passed away six weeks before I signed my book deal and never got to see the trial. You will always be in my heart, Mom. This is for you. And that's where I started crying in my car. Oh my god! <laughs> anyway. It makes me so sad. So, 
I do believe that Jeff's legacy will continue to be honored and talked about long after this trial is over because I think he did immeasurable good with his tenacity in reporting on things that at times did put his life in danger. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so we'll briefly talk about my sources. Um, the only other podcast I found that covered his murder was the Killer Destinations podcast, episode When the News is About Your Own Demise, Jeff Gurman, Las Vegas, Nevada, 2022. And it's hosted by Kathy with a K and Kathy with a C. Oh my god. I really liked their episode. It's where I got a lot of my context for Jeff's other cases that he had covered. Mm-hmm. So they did a great job with that. And um, I plan to continue listening to them. So that was Killer Destinations podcast. Oh, one fun fact about the, um, the bribing by the strip club owners. Mm-hmm. The FBI investigation, they called it G-Sting. G-Sting! No! Yeah, I thought that was funny. Other sources included a CBS article, an article by the New York Post about the case, 8 News Now, and CourtTV.com, just to cover my ass. Anyway, the tall tale is actually a Murder, She Wrote movie that came out after the series ended. Murder, She Wrote. So it is Murder, She Wrote, South by Southwest. Lansbury. Yep, I had to completely write her character out. Oh my god. (laughs) The movie did come out in 1997, so that is why that is a year of the tall tale. The private security agent, see, I mentioned is really the NSA. Okay. And I realized, I'm like, the stakes are too high if this involves the NSA. So it became a private security company. Howard Fitzpatrick, who I spoke about, was Peter Hayward in the movie. Peter and the reporter, which was seemingly nameless in the movie, were both murdered, but on separate occasions. Oh. And Peter was murdered in downtown LA. A woman did flag down a police officer and said, I saw this man be murdered. As I was walking my dog, I'm afraid the assailant saw me. Please protect me. That woman then met Jessica on a train. Oh, her name's Jessica, not Sarah. Oh, no, no. Jessica is um, Angela Lansbury. Jessica is our main character of Murder, She Wrote. Oh. Sarah, Sarah I've is never Sarah. watched Murder, She Wrote. Oh, God. <laughs> I just know it's Angela Lansbury. Every um, time I mention Mrs. Maisel, my mom thinks Mrs. Marple, and then thinks Angela Lansbury, and then oh. thinks Murder, She Wrote, and it's all different things. Aww. My brain, too, gets confused. So, yes, our Sarah character did fake being a witness. She did murder our whistle blower. So did she murder the named one or the reporter? She murdered, um... The nameless reporter? Or No. She murdered the employee. That you called Howard Fitzpatrick? That I called Howard, okay. yes. Whose real name is Peter Hayward. Yes. Whose real fictional name is... His real fictional name. <laughs> Sarah was having an affair, but not with Howard slash Peter's boss, but with Peter himself. Oh my god. And she's a spy. <laughs> Oh my god! And I had to write so much out of this. Like, there, she was a spy. There was a whole spy ring. The other people from the spy ring are the ones that murdered the oh reporter. God, but I love a good spy ring. There was a murder on a train. Oh my I, god. I thought about making that the theme, but I'm like, no, another time. <laughs> another time. Train murders. And yeah. you can't choose murder on the Orient nope. Express. <laughs> They traveled all over the Southwest in this movie. There was like a thousand different locations. But yeah, the short long story is man discovers satellite um, security risk in the NSA. Bosses don't listen to him. He takes little microchip that I don't understand to see a reporter in Los Angeles is murdered before he meets the reporter because reporter is running late. And then is all kinds of confusion after that to try and get this little chip back. Okay. And in the end, you realize Sarah killed her own lover because she didn't really love him. She was just a spy trying to steal his 
confidential information. Oh my god, nothing's worse than a spy who doesn't love you. I know, at least love me. At least love me. <laughs> um, so yes, that- I got to play a spy once in a play that didn't love anyone. I just got murdered in the first scene. It was called The 39 Steps. It's really cool. Oh, okay. We shall check it out sometime. Yeah, I love it. Honestly, I love playing every single character. I went from being a murder victim to like an old man politician to a sheep uh, to a paper boy. I was doing one man newsies for a moment. And then I was a police inspector. It was great. I got to go from, hello, dog. Were there other people? people in this play yes <laughs> but i got to play everyone else it was awesome you were the entire ensemble dude the amount of different accents i got to do fantastic i went from oh How thank you, you darling uh i was like, a sophomore all right so all these accents are clearly top-notch I taught myself how to do a German accent, and I taught myself how to do a Cockney paper boy accent. I did an old man accent, and people were so complimentary and convinced. Like, they were like, how did you get old man gumming it? Like, mannerisms down. I'm like, I'm so young, yet so old. And then I got to be a nice stuffy police inspector. It was fantastic. I was with Scotland Yard, and I had five o'clock shadow on. It was great. I love it. It was awesome. <laughs> Um, anyway, moving forward. Anyway, no, those are my notes. Perfect. Glad I got to talk about being a police inspector back in the day. Yes, no, um, do you have any further comments on these cases? I mean, it was a wild ride, you know? Like, you kind of, you had me a little, a little duped there. I got, I got a little nervous sweaty going, I don't really know, but. Yeah, you snatched the laptop out of my lap. I did, I had to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) To look at it and really look. All right. Well, I highly recommend everyone listen to the, um, Mobbed Up podcast. Jeff absolutely does a great job in writing and hosting it in the second season. And um, it's just kind of... It's sad. It's, it's, it's melancholy, yeah, to, to listen to this man yeah, describe talk. the history of his of his city that he loved so much and reported on so deeply and then realize that, realize like... His, that's, the, like, the only thing left of him right now, really. Other than, like, you know, his legacy and all that. Oh, yeah. But, like, a physical, like, reporting, it's haunting after the fact. It's haunting posthumously. Yes, yes, yes. And... This is very morbid, but I'm like, in a way, I am doing my loved ones a favor by making this podcast, because if anything ever happens to me, they have an extensive recording of me being an idiot. Yeah, exactly. It's like a little time capsule of our dumb little voices. Yeah. Record things for your loved ones, guys. You never know if it's going to be the last thing that they hear. Thank you guys for listening to True Crime of Tall Tale. It has been a wild ride hope you were comfy because we made it very uncomfy in here it's been real it's been cat and jack catch you next time bye Bye. oh god i hate us i also don't like us very much